Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have a returning guest, Avner Baruch. Many of you will have met him before on previous podcasts, but uh, Avner is the founder, the creator of the Moneyball approach to sales enablement. Avner, could you give us a quick introduction to what that means? What is Moneyball when it comes to sales enablement? Of course, I'll be delighted to. First of all, thank you very much for having me again here. I'm extremely delighted to be taking part of this podcast. Altogether, what Moneyball refers to or mean is to move away from traditional approach to either revenue intelligence or accomplishing your KPIs and goals, training new hires or helping existing reps to brush up on a specific topic identifying what works, what doesn't work. In most cases, when we're talking about, you know, the sales organization, starting from, you know, leads getting uh, distributed to account executives and then moving next to the sales cycle and whatever happens right after that, when an opportunity converts into an account, what we hope for is what what we are trying to accomplish is an idea of what works and what doesn't work in order to fill in the gaps and provide the help reps team members need. So in most cases, sellers organizations rely on the data that they are extracting from CRM, whatever CRM they're using. And that helps you to understand the, the what. And I refer to that as the flat data, just numbers. For example, you might realize that you're losing money to a certain competitor, or maybe the sales cycle is not where you want to be. Could be like X days and weeks, whatever. And then, you know, if you look at these numbers, from traditional approach, maybe you want to change something. So you go back to your drawing board and then maybe you want to refine your playbooks, messaging, whatever it takes. Moneyball refers to the, uh, to the process of establishing a 360 degrees coverage to the entire sales cycle and whatever happens afterwards. Again, when an opportunity converts into an account, it means that you extract more data, you blend in other sources of data like social media, whatever happens on social media, whatever reps are doing on social media, whether their previous experience and expertise was helping them to ramp up and address a specific vertical, how they execute on the sales cycle, especially early stages sales cycle. That's extremely important in my opinion. This is most neglected, the most neglected area in my opinion because people just look at the outcome, sales cycle, whether you win or lose and whether you park at a certain stage. But what really happens during the sales cycle? What really happens on the call with the prospect? From time management point of view, from language, from every aspect of the communication. And that's basically what Moneyball is all about. How do you move from being tactical in sales enablement to being strategic? That's a great question. So altogether over the, uh, the last few years, I came up with a few ideas, equations, and formulas. I think that, you know, the reason for moving the uh, sales enablement function from tacticals to strategic is basically because of COVID and because of any other crisis that awaits us around the corner. I think that we need to broaden our responsibility and touch point with the other business units in the organization. The first area that you know, I would recommend to anyone who's listening to this, to this interview, to this podcast, is revenue intelligence. Traditionally, revenue intelligence or data intelligence falls under the BI team, which is a great idea and 
in most cases, that's this, this is what is, what is happening. And it should be. I'm not here to replace that. I'm not here to suggest that we replace, we should replace whatever the BI team is putting together or is doing in order, you know, for the sake of the uh, sales organization. I'm here to suggest an alternative approach or a complementary approach. What does that look like? It looks like, you know, um, let's talk about the most uh, obvious example. Again, let's talk about competition. So the BI team spends X time, X minute, X, X days trying to understand, you know, how competition looks like from pipeline point of view, whether we lose to a certain competitor or um, to a certain vertical. And then they bring back, you know, numbers like over the last year, we lost uh, X millions of dollars because of competition. So that's the traditional approach. How much money we're losing to competition? Maybe, you know, you'll get an idea of, you know, a breakdown idea divided by competitors. We're losing X dollars to X, Y, or whatever, okay? Revenue intelligence from a competitive point of view talks about the process of understanding why are we losing to a certain competitor or the entire competitive landscape. Why and when? So maybe the reason we're losing the competition is maybe we're not dealing with competition from the first place. This suggests that what traditional sales enablement is focused on is lagging indicators. And we need to focus on leading indicators so that we can do something about it in advance of missing our number, in advance of losing that business. So what are you suggesting that sales enablement and leadership do differently in order to make sure that they stay ahead of the problem instead of just reporting it and then complaining about how tough it is? That's an amazing question. So there are so many ideas, you know, I can propose and suggest uh, to begin with. The first touch, we know when the new hire joined the team, what onboarding should look like is definitely not slides, not self-learning. Okay, maybe to some level, I mean, reps need to spend time learning, practicing how to pitch, yeah, understanding the buyer persona KPIs and definitely understanding the competition, what competition looks like. But from an onboarding point of view, in order to make the best of your time, what needs to happen is mainly simulations. So move away from reactive approach, from self-learning approach. Try to accomplish maybe 50-50%, maybe 82-20%, whatever you're capable of. In my opinion, what needs to happen during onboarding, and uh, definitely I'm not suggesting a very short onboarding process, sales enablement need to come up with simulations, role-playing, where one plays the, uh, the prospect and another person can wear the, uh, the AE hat. And altogether, they need to practice as much as possible mitigating objections around competition, price, time, etc. So when you simulate, when you go through simulations, you, you make the best of your time during onboarding and then reduces the risks and challenges that come later. The conclusion I've reached now that I've taken on these fractional CRO roles is that the recruitment process needs to be part of the pre-onboarding. And what I've done is I've created a syntax so that they learn specific skills as they are candidates along the way. So they learn how to do pre-call plans, post-call debriefs, how they, they learn how to do a strategic review of the marketplace, uh, to do a competitor analysis in order to uh, make sure that by the time you offer the role, they already understand what's involved. Then there is a 30-day 
pre-onboarding process where they listen to calls, where they experience what it's like to be a rep. Then there's 120 days of onboarding where they need to know what they need to know, what they need to know by when they need to know it, where they can find those resources, to what standard they will be measured and any red flags. And that we have probably a 70-30 to begin with in the first couple of weeks. And then it moves over 70% uh, learning to 30% doing. And over the course of the next four months, which is the period in which that the new hire is putting the job, the company, the boss, the market on probation, you are transitioning them and helping them, setting them up to succeed. But traditionally, you hire people because you think they've got the skills, experience, and historical results. And so I've hired a grown-up. I'm just going to leave them to it. I think that is a negligent management style. So your thoughts? First of all, I couldn't agree more. Unfortunately, that's, you know, that's the common best practice today. And uh, leaders should you know, move away from this approach because you, know, you, you might you know, bring in you know, the most skilled rep, but altogether, going back to your product portfolio and total addressable market and you know, complexity of the whole environment, from a system point of view, from a messaging point of view, it might not be enough to rely on someone's skills. Maybe they'll need some help just to begin with. And especially, let's, let's talk about a very simple example where you need to address multiple verticals at the same time. Not just you know, go after one specific vertical, but from day one, you are required to hunt, target multiple verticals. And every vertical comes with a different skill set, different KPIs, different lingo. And every time you, you know, put down the phone and then pick it up to address another buyer persona, another C-level, whatever, you need to change hats. And you can't expect reps during their first 30 days, even 60 days, to become successful doing that. They might win some, but definitely won't be able to accomplish your goals. This clearly leads to the second stage, which must be to actually coach the tier one managers. But they are the most undertrained, undercoached, and highly exposed people in your organization. So, what kind of shift in leadership thinking is required, and what kind of support do those guys need? That's another important area that leaders need to consider as part of the uh, you know culture and strategic strategic plan. Tier one managers need to stop focusing on, you know, the uh, last stages of the sales cycle manager, their pipeline, um, you know, focusing the, I mean, they should do that, but at the same time, they should coach and enable their team members because in order to scale up and scale out, sales enablement need to establish a system of multipliers. And this is where tier one managers step in. You need to coach your tier one managers. You need to, to help them, to empower them with you know, content, skills, infrastructure, whatever it takes in order to help them to reach out to individuals where you identify individual gaps and to reach out to teams on a team level to help them to breach specific common gaps that uh, occur across the board. So what I'm suggesting is to, first of all, meet with tier one managers or first start with leadership, 
because you have to gather a bind because the most common pushback is I don't want tier one managers to spend time, waste time on coaching people. It's your job, sales enablement. <laughs> um, oh, so, oh. Yeah, I can do that. You know, I, yeah, let's do that. One man show. Yeah, but it doesn't work. Let me just make a point here. If you have that philosophy, you are a fucking idiot. You have no right to be in a leadership role in sales. Coaching is the single biggest determining factor that determines team success and individual rep success. We know from the research that three to three and a half hours of coaching time per rep, and that's real coaching, not just turning up, puffing your chest and saying, this is how a real salesperson does it, (laughs) but actually coaching them so they come up with the solution themselves. Three and a half hours delivers 105% average quota attainment per rep. Failure to do three to three and a half hours achieves a typical quota attainment of 40 to 60%. So anyone who is saying stupid stuff like that, frankly, remove from your leadership team. Get rid of them or at least put a cattle prod right right up their bottom because they have no right to be saying stupid things like that. Avnad, tell me this. You've got this layer of management who essentially don't really know how to coach. And their idea of coaching is telling people what they would do or pounding the table, beating their chest, saying, you've got to work harder. Why doesn't that work? Because nobody likes to be told what to do. Nobody likes a mirror in front of their face. Nobody likes, you know, to be said, to be, uh, to be told that, you know, you've done it all wrong and uh, try harder. Um, maybe it works to some level, but altogether what needs to happen is uh, start with a positive feedback, okay? Find those areas that the, uh, the reps were, you know, good with, they were successful with, and then find the areas that need to improve on and then provide them ideas to adapt to, to execute on, and then, okay, provide your own personal experience. And then, you know, you might want to consider spending time, you know, doing call shadowing or, um, you know, practicing, simulating areas, etc. Altogether, what reps want to see is an example, not just a critic. Listening to someone like Tom Castley in the pre-onboarding stage, and David Weiss as well, both from Outreach, they will typically have reps in the pre-onboarding stage during their notice period, listening to calls and going through the conversational analytics from systems like Gong, Chorus, or Refract. So, Avna, can you give some examples of the best in the world best practices of organizations who do that coaching in the pre-onboarding, the onboarding, and post-onboarding in order to ensure that the reps are doing the right behaviors from day one, that they are concentrating on not only the top and bottom of the funnel, but also the middle of the funnel, and that they are learning how to drive a sale forward. Instead of spinning their wheels in a continuation, they're always advancing or getting out. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be happy to. So during onboarding, you know, part of the pre-onboarding process, what needs to happen is, as I said before, I think that we need to focus on, you know, simulating as many common scenarios as possible. So as a, as a manager, you can wear the uh, prospect hat and uh, allow your team member to practice, you know, the messaging, the playbooks, the, uh, the sales demo, etc. And then you basically you can change hats. So you've gone through the traditional regular simulation case where the, uh, the new hire 
where's the AE at? But now you can actually play the uh, the account executive, and you let the uh, you know the, the the new hire play the the prospect. So he gets to practice both cases, both ends of the sales cycle. What also needs to happen is, I think that in my I mean in my opinion, based on my based on my experience. Managers should also look at the early stages, whatever happens, you know, on the first touch and second, second touch of the prospect. And if you can practice that as early as possible and not just focus on negotiation skills and commercial, et cetera, simulate what discovery looks like and uh, you know, how reps are pitching the playbooks, et cetera. And if you can practice, if you can invest time doing that as early as possible, you don't have to worry about, you know, damage control later on. That's really important because I think in a game of chess, the opening six or seven moves determine the outcome of the game typically. And in sales, the opening moves from marketing and the handover from marketing to sales, and then the opening conversations that sales have in terms of setting up expectations determine what the customer expects. And net result of that is very often the syntax is wrong. The handover between marketing and sales is poor, and there isn't that alignment. So I'm really curious to understand what you're advocating in terms of making sure that you're bridging the gap, the handoff between marketing and sales. So going back to uh, you know Moneyball approach, Let's put that actually aside and let's talk about the regular mechanism, which is we've got a lead generation engine and we're distributing the leads to the entire team. To some point, you know, you might uh, look at the pipeline, you might look at the, at the numbers and say, yeah, we could have done better. But what really happens during that process? Can you find out? Can you identify? Can you surface any risks? Can you surface any, any areas of friction where leads are not distributed well among the team? So what sales enablement can do is they can actually step in and look at the process from a conversational point of view and see, you know, what holds back some specific reps from executing, from converting those leads. And if there is a way to find out how leads are being converted by individuals, then maybe you can go back and refine the whole process, the whole handoff process. I can give so many examples, you know, just to begin with. One simple example is, uh, let's say you've got a team of 10 people and 50% of the team or maybe 80% of the team are executing well, whereas 20% of the team are not executing very well. But if you, if you end up distributing the, lead, the leads equally among the team, that means you're losing 20% of the pipeline. You're not converting well 20% of the pipeline. If you can actually find out what keeps the 20% of the team from executing, from converting those leads, then you can suggest you know, an, an alternative approach, which is let's find a better way, maybe a weighted round rubing, or maybe let's sp- spend more time enabling those, those 20% of the team in order to help them to execute better on those, on those leads. And maybe, again, if, if you've got X verticals you need to go after, and some reps are very good at executing or targeting a specific vertical, whereas some, some others are not doing that very well. And if you can actually find out which verticals individuals are doing better, then you can refine the whole lead distribution process. You can make sure that you've got a perfect match between the quality of the lead from an industry vertical point of view and from the rep point of view. So you know that reps get the leads they need based on their expertise prior to joining your company or whatever the reason is. 
This then raises another really important question in my mind, which is, is what people in marketing are focused on measuring actually hobbling their ability to support sales effectively? It depends. Some, some, companies, some companies, some businesses have the granularity to measure what success looks like. But in most cases, I think that they just look at the uh, win-loss ratio or conversion ratio or rejection ratio. But they're not actually delving into the details. They're not trying to understand why we get those numbers. And again, you know, the more complex your environment is from a vertical point of view, from a market point of view, the more likely to have multiple reasons for rejecting or not converting. And in most cases, you just neglect that. You don't bother to look at these areas. You just look at the final outcome, which is conversion rate is X or rejection rate is X. Maybe at some point, reps don't feel comfortable with the messaging, with the playbooks. They feel more comfortable, let's say, selling your, com- your product to a specific vertical. And then, you know, they're not doing very well with the other remaining verticals. But when you look at the outcome, it doesn't do you good. It doesn't do any justice. Mark Schaefer makes the point that the evidence is out there, but the results are not. And too often what I've seen in dozens, hundreds of companies um, is that they spend their time keeping asking the same question of themselves instead of asking the really important question, which is why is this not delivering the intended outcome? And as a result, they then create this condition where there is conflict between marketing and sales, sales and customer success. And the ones who really suffer are the customer, but vicariously, the business also suffers. And as a result of that, you end up being disappointed. What needs to change at a leadership level so that they no longer allow this misalignment and this competitional conflict between marketing, sales, and customer success. I totally agree. By the way, just to add to, uh, to, on top of that, some businesses, you know, when they find out that conversion is not where they want to be or rejection rate is not, is definitely not satisfying. So what they do is they just introduce more complexity by introducing more technologies or more processes or more steps, or maybe they replace, you know, one process with another instead of, you know, understanding the conversational aspects of the problem or behavioral aspects of the problem. Yeah, you get this technology spaghetti with, (laughs) you know, 15, 20 different technologies that are built up over time, but the results don't improve and they just keep throwing money and effort at the problem, which is like practicing being crap at golf. So why does that persist though? Because there must come a point where people beat their head against the wall and suddenly realize, you know, it's not the wall's fault that I have a headache. Maybe you come in with a lot of experience and expertise, years of experience doing the same thing. So yeah, this should work. That's the way it worked in the past. That's the way it's going to work here. And if it doesn't work, you know, let's, let's just refine the process. But altogether, you know, I'm using the same mechanism, same approach, et cetera. Run rubbing, rated run rubbing, without, you know, finding out, you know, what, how does it look like from, from the customer point of view? In that case, the customer is the, the, you know, the account executives. If something, you know, holds them back, maybe let's just blame them for converting or rejecting call without understanding, you know, the behavioral reasons, as I said before. 
what needs to happen in addition is, you know, you always need to come to, uh, you, you always need to be open-minded because there are always changes. The whole industry is evolving into a more productive and efficient environment. And, and today there are so many other, you know, mechanisms and ideas and approaches. Like, for example, we don't have to rely on the round robin anymore. We can actually automate the whole process. We can spend some time, you know, defining the process, what to look for, how does success look like and what triggers conversion and what, what triggers rejection. And then we can automate the process and make sure that a lead ends up at a certain rep's bucket because that specific rep is more likely to close, to convert that lead because it comes with the right experience, expertise. We can put into the equation the previous experience that the account executives bring to the company and other parameters. Altogether, I think that today, because the industry is changing, the digital environment is changing, everything is changing so fast, everyone needs to come in with a more open-minded approach. Okay. I need to introduce to a guy, Rob Turley, who is the founder of a company called White Rabbit Intel because it speaks precisely to this issue, that sometimes um, you've got the wrong rep speaking to the right customer. And you need to make sure that you're really tailoring not only your approach and your messaging, but also the personalities. And you've got that correct fit. But this, I'm not going to make any friends here, but uh, (laughs) like I've often said, I don't need another one. My frustration is that I think a lot of sales enablement people are in desperate need running around looking for a reason to keep their job because they aren't making the needle move to the right. And I see shining examples of brilliance. Yourself, people like Anita Nielsen, people like Rod Jefferson, who genuinely do. But most sales enablement, frankly, you'd be better taking the money and just setting it alight. At least you'll uh, keep warm. And it drives me crazy that enablement doesn't have a more senior seat at the table, given how important it is. But this then speaks to this other problem, which is that you've got these traditional lines of attack and defense. You've got these silos. And I think enablement and customer success are two of the most critically important elements of a sales operation, but they aren't valued anywhere near enough. What, why does that persist? I think it's a great topic to discuss today. As you said, maybe we're not going to make a lot of friends today, but I think it's important that everyone understands why we end up in this situation. To begin with, I think that enablement is perceived or is seen as a facilitator, someone some function that facilitates or orchestrates a process where we're bringing some specific stakeholders and subject matter experts, and we just touch, you know, at the end of the day, we just touch the surface of the problem. But altogether, what needs to happen is a more proactive sales enablement approach Sales enablement needs to touch different areas of the business, not just the sales business or the sales ecosystem, because whatever happens before leads converts, before, you know, in in the process of MQL becomes SQL and whatever happens later when an opportunity converts into an account. A proper sales enablement 
function needs to be responsible of the entire process from a coaching training point of view from you know identifying gaps and bridging those gaps and as a leader if you don't expect if you don't empower the sales enablement function to touch those areas to be responsible to own that areas okay you won't be able to succeed what I've seen happen very often is either L&D, learning and development, uh, or sales enablement bring in an external trainer. And that trainer comes in, they do a little bit of entertainment, and they turn up and then they leave. And one thing that's really baffled me is the lack of effectiveness of corporate training in particular. Very often, L&D or enablement don't measure the impact. And no one in the history of humanity has ever bought training because they want training. They want an outcome. Then they're not measuring it. So you see these uh, corporate training organizations come in and they do their stuff. And you see a little bit of increase in enthusiasm for a couple of weeks afterwards. But the results don't change. And what? why is it that executive teams are allowing their salespeople to be taken off the road to go into training where they're not seeing a 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 50, 100, 300% increase in sales. Uh, All they're seeing is the salespeople spending a couple of uh, days on a jolly in a hotel or now on Zoom. And there's no real performance improvement. There are two, two reasons, or maybe a few reasons for that to happen. One is that leaders, executives, they fail to understand what enablement is. So they have this idea of L&D, as you said, and let's just take an L&D, someone from L&D, and you know, task them to step in and provide the help w- w- that we need for our sales organization. You can't do that. L&D or L&D, and most, in most cases, you know, they focus on the post-sales activities, okay? They don't understand, in most cases, what sales is all about. They don't understand the sales cycle. They don't understand the challenges. They don't understand the sales process. They don't have any background, relevant background with sales methodologies, whether it's challenger, value selling, Sandler, whatever, okay? And if you rely as a leader, if you rely on your L&D leaders or trainers, to step in and provide you the help you need with your sales organization, it's not going to work. They might try very hard, but altogether, what's going to happen, as you said, Marcus, they're going to bring in someone else who has the expertise to train salespeople. But that specific function, contractor, consultant, they're going to be spending time as much as a few days, maybe a few weeks with your sales team, but then they're going to vanish. Okay, they're going to disappear on you. And then you're going to be left alone with your whatever the collateral they left on the table. And who's going to orchestrate that process? Who is going to own the process of providing ongoing training or um, you know, resuming all the coaching and activities that you were supposed to do to accomplish? From an L&D point of view, you don't, you don't have the experience, the skills to talk sales with your sales organization. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, I think that leadership needs to first understand what they want, okay? They need to understand first what enablement means and what can it do for the sales organization. Enablement, sales enablement, is very much different than the traditional L&D approach. First, you need to make sure that that person, the sales enablement function, you're going to bring in, 
they've got the right experience, they understand, they understand sales, they have the right experience from sales methodology point of view, and they can actually fill in the gap from you know either training on a specific methodology or taking the the uh, the new hire through the entire sales cycle and uh, practice whatever it takes from discovery, negotiation, sales demo, every aspect of the sales cycle, without relying on someone else's availability or skills. If it makes any sense. It's a slightly dissatisfying response because we both know that most corporate training doesn't work and it leaves sales organizations probably no better off other than they can tick the box in terms of training. And I think that this feeds into something else that I know you're a keen advocate of, which is understanding how to implement change, but to do it effectively. Because in the same way that I fundamentally believe that what we should be doing is selling with the user and the customer front and center, and then building our proposition out from there. In the same way, I think our training and our enablement activities should start with the the stakeholder, the salesperson, the SDR, the AE and then work out from there. And that means that those people need to be consulted. Those people need to feel like their voice is being heard. And training needs to be tailored specifically to help them perform better in their role. But generally, all it is is an overlay of some template, whether it's challenge or anything else. And then they get fed from a fire hose for a few days, the managers often aren't involved. So there's no mechanism for reinforcement at direct management level. And net result of that is that you don't see any change. And so yet another change management program falls flat because there isn't that inclusiveness. There isn't that communication. There isn't that tailoring specifically to their real world requirements. So what advice would you give particularly in the early stages of implementing a change to the way a sales force operates in order to ensure success, because the failure rates on these are terribly high. They're well into the 80% mark. I totally agree. To begin with, actually, let's start from the end. If, you, if there is a way to measure success across the board, and the more, you know, the bigger the organization is, the bigger your team is, the harder it is to measure success. You just look at the numbers and maybe then you conclu- conclude that yeah, our new campaign works or it doesn't work. The more team members you have, the harder it is to understand whether something works or doesn't work uh, from an individual point of view or from a messaging point of view. Just look at the, uh, you know, the, the flat numbers, the outcome. So what needs to happen is to find a way to really understand how reps are interacting with whatever product marketing put together from the very early stages of the process either by spending time, you know, as part of the onboarding process, simulations, and see how, you know, reps are interacting with the uh, messaging and the collateral that you put together. And later on a call with a prospect, if there is a way to measure engagement, how reps are engaging with their messaging, playbooks, sales decks, etc., then you can find out whether there are some hiccups or any, any areas of friction. Maybe 
let's say that you don't, you don't have any process in place today. So you just look at the outcome and you're not very happy with the results. You feel like, you know, the, the latest campaign or the latest brochure, whatever collateral you put together, just doesn't cut it, doesn't bring in the results you were hoping for. But you have no idea why and maybe when or where there are some areas of friction. So if you can spend time, if you, if you can actually delve into the process of, you know, whatever, you know, how reps are communicating with prospects, if you can find out whether reps are actually using those collaterals, maybe they're not engaging well with the messaging, they don't feel confident enough to, to talk about a specific message or a specific, maybe, I don't know, feature or a specific strength, etc. Maybe, you know, competition has caught up with you and uh, there is no point talking about, you know, whatever you put together on the side. So if there is a way to look at the conversation, the communication between prospects and the account executive and see how reps are engaging with those playbooks, then you can take it back to product marketing or marketing and then refine whatever it is that needs to happen. I want to challenge you on that. I think the fundamentally flawed area with all of this is that too often sales enablement management thinks it's about creating decks and playbooks and helping people to demo and so forth. I fundamentally believe where it's all going wrong is that reps are not taught how to think. They're not taught to think as the customer. I don't believe that there's anywhere near enough emphasis on having salespeople, whether they're SDRs, AEs, enterprise sales, channel, thinking as the customer. And I think that part of that problem is that marketing doesn't understand the customer because of something we alluded to earlier, which is that technology spaghetti. They're focused on creating leads no matter what their quality. And I think we all need to take a step back and we need to really learn how to think, how to think as the customer, how to think about what it's like to be them what are the outcomes that they are trying to achieve and really get our heads around that first because no amount of technique is going to improve your performance if you don't understand those fundamentals. And that's really where I, I would personally like to see more emphasis around change management, around sales enablement, about uh, management development because without understanding the customer, all you're doing is producing a better mousetrap when actually what they really want is a hovercraft. You're not improving what matters to the customer. So what do we have to do to get people to think better? I totally agree. Let me answer with an example. So going back to Moneyball, Project Moneyball, what I realized, what I discovered is that, you know, the more time you spend on preparation, and the more time you spend on actively listening to the prospect uh, going through their pains and business issues, the more successful probably you'll be. And if you put that aside and you go with just the traditional approach that, you know, all you can get, I'm going to meet with a prospect, I'm going to go through a, a certain level of discovery, and then I'm going to tick off the sales presentation box because, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do because that's what product, product marketing put together for me. So maybe, you know, I won't be talking about the 10 different slides, but, you know, altogether, I'll walk the prospect through the uh, majority part of the presentation. And then maybe, you know, in some point, I'll go back to discovery or just tick another box, which is the sales demo. And that's just the most 
I'm trying to find the most uh, you know relevant. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's irrelevant absurd. and pointless. Um, and, and you know this is going on in your organization when your reps are saying, oh, we need a new sales deck. It's the product. We need to do, you know, this product isn't up to snuff. It's our pricing. It's the competition. It's our management. It's the economy. All of that is a crock of complete horseshit. The reality is, as long as your product does roughly what it says on the tin, and it can deliver the outcome that the customer wants, then you need to focus on being a great listener. You need to be uh, asking really effective, insightful questions. You need to feed off the prospect's responses. And you need to guide them through a process of self-discovery so they discover why they want to change. Your message needs to help them understand why they need to move away from the status quo, and you have to unsettle them from their current preference. You need to be able to demonstrate to them with a business case that allows them to understand time, money, resource, opportunity cost, reputation, in terms of the value change will deliver. You need to be able to create enough white space between you and the competition and you and the status quo. And you need to put their minds at rest with respect to anticipated regret and blame for making the change. And if you do all of that, then you have a fighting chance of being in the mix. Otherwise, you're just going to end up in one of two bad places, which is you end up doing free consulting. Or you end up moving straight into a beauty parade and you're one of many on a pitch. And the chances are it will end up in the status quo. I I know from the research that corporate visions have done, 60% of buying cycles end up with them doing nothing. That's your biggest competitor. And if you can't find a way of helping the prospect discover for themselves why they need to change, then you're on a sticky wicket. So, Avner, your thoughts? I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, if I if I'll need to focus on, you know, the key points that you just mentioned, I would say discovery. And uh, I think that reps really have to change their mindset when they meet for the first time with a prospect. Discovery, I'm just repeating your, your words here. Res- discovery is not a process of asking questions. It's not about, you know, asking discovery questions. It's not about discovering their needs. It is, but there's more to it. Discovery is about leading the prospect to discover that you are the best fit to their environment because you're not the first one, you're not the last one they're going to meet with, okay? And uh, if you sound, if you look and sound like every other competitor, every other player, which is, I'm going to spend some time on small talk. I'm going to go through five to seven minutes of discovery questions. I'm going to ask them those, you know, pain funnel questions or whatever methodology I'm using. And then I'm going to take off the sales presentation box. And then I'm going to take off another box that, you know, the sales playbook says I need to. Altogether, if you go through this process, you're going to look and sound exactly like any other player. And maybe, you know, you'll, <laughs> you'll land on a very <laughs> busy day on the prospect side. You're very, you know, a prospect or you're going to meet with a prospect who doesn't really have the patience to go through this. And I've been there. I've listened to prospects actually saying, hey, I've been through this with your colleague before. Why do I have to go through this process again with you? Why do I have to answer all those questions from scratch, from the beginning? I don't, I don't see any point in doing that. 
So you really need to stand out. And to stand out, to sound different, to provide values to your prospect, probably sometimes you need to change your approach. You need to put your prospect on stage. You need to let them talk about their business issues. And there's always more than, you know, more than they claim they have. It's always about expanding the diameter of pain and addressing other business issues that maybe they've taken for granted or maybe they didn't consider, they didn't see a way to, to resolve or they didn't consider you as, as, a, as a fit or they didn't actually thought that your solution can help them with other areas you know, or other business issues. So your job is to lead them to the conclusion that you can actually fit into their environment and you're the best option they have. Absolutely. Let's delve into another area, which is risk assessment. For a sales enablement function to be effective, we both agree that understanding the risks is really key. Do you mind giving us some insight into how you think uh, about this topic? Yeah, I'll be more than happy to do so. Again, uh, in most cases, the sales organization, the sales eco- ecosystem or leadership rely on the BI team or a CRM analyst to come up with you know, risks, some idea of risks. And it's always like you know, post-mortem approach. Like you've go, you're going through some problem and then you realize that you should have taken a different approach in order to avoid risks or in order to improve conversion, whatever. So risk assessment talks about being predictive, being proactive, trying to find any patterns for failures. And of course, for success as well. But I want to focus on failures or risks for losing an opportunity because of behavioral actions or because of conversational habits. Risk assessment talks about being able to predict issues because of uh, maybe housekeeping problems, reps are not maintaining data on Salesforce or whatever CRM you're using, or maybe because competition was not, was not handled well, or maybe because uh, you know, the way the call is structured what happens on the first touch with a prospect? What happens on the second touch with a prospect? Are you relying too much on your pre-sales team and too early in the process? Are you providing free consultants too early in the process? So risk assessment from sales enablement point of view talks about the ability to predict risks to probability or to close the, the opportunity because of, again, behavioral habits or conversational habits. This then points to another area, which is historically enablement hasn't really been able to go on ride-alongs. But now through COVID, we've been gifted a huge blessing, which is the ability to apply conversational analytics to every call. And enablement should be listening to those calls and identifying the patterns that create negative conditions in the buyer's mind and cause buyers to go neutral or cold because reps are bringing in product too early or they are failing to do proper discovery. And using that uh, those analytics in order to be able to coach individual reps on how to drive the conversation forward and advance the relationship and then turn those into best practice calls which are shared amongst the team. And I think this is where enablement can really be very proactive. And for the next 18 to 24 months, we're going to be stuck with this COVID uh, malarkey. 
So take advantage of it. Every wonderful gray cloud comes with a silver lining, and this is it. Mm -hmm. This is the opportunity for sales enablement to step up its game and for sales organizations to partner between sales enablement and management to ensure that the right kind of coaching is going on. But there's very little of that out there in the, in the real world, in the marketplace. So again, if we were to look at the critical issue, which is collaboration, and I fundamentally believe Jay Abraham is right in this, that your uh, success in the future will be determined by your ability to collaborate. And this is about collaboration between leadership, management, sales enablement, marketing, the sales reps, customer success, the consultants and the pre-sales people who are out in the field, all sharing their best practices, sharing their experience, and using technology effectively in order to ensure that you are getting insight into what's really working and what is not. So, Avna, we've come to uh, time now. Tell me, what's your final parting word of advice to someone who is maybe taking on a new sales enablement role? What do they need to contract with senior management about in order to ensure that they set themselves up to succeed and help their salespeople be successful? So I think the bottom line is uh, sales enablement is a very important and crucial uh, function in the uh, process to become, you know, success, in the journey to become success, successful. Sales enablement has to take part in the process of making decisions has to be there when the leadership takes actions or decides whether to go with one approach or another. Sales enablement is a strategic function and role, and leadership has to see sales enablement as one. And if you can accomplish that from day one, then you're on to succeed. In your mindset, if you think tactical, and if you think that your, your job is just to train, you won't be able to succeed. Excellent. Avna, how can people get hold of you? On LinkedIn. And uh, I'll be sharing my email address on the first comment once we publish we go out with this uh, podcast. Excellent. Avnad Baruch, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Thank you very much, Marcus. It's been a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation then useful, then please get in touch with either me or Avna. Uh, my email address is marcus at laughs-last.com or contact me on LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please connect us either via email or through a direct message on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.